Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast, which presents the interviews from our live shows in Minneapolis. The topic of our show today is all about end-of-life care, talking about advanced directives and living wills and everything in between. We had two guests for this show, Brenda Hartman, who is a psychotherapist at Therapy for Children, Adults, and Families Incorporated. She's run her own private practice for nearly 30 years. Our other guest is Dr. Ann McIntosh, who received her medical degree from the University of Minnesota in 1993 and completed her residency in emergency medicine at the University of New Mexico. Our media sponsor this season is MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can read local, state, and national news at MinPost.com. Thank you so much for being here. This is so this is so great. It's uh, the last show of our season. Uh, we're uh, it's Memorial Day, and we're going to have a whole show about end of life. So that's great. It's we ticked all the boxes, uh, and there's drinking, so it's sort of wake like. So um, I was thinking about this and just how I wanted to try and set up the show. And you know, there's that old line that like uh, generally people's two biggest fears are. Um, dying and public speaking. And like the joke goes, like people are more afraid of public speaking, so you'd actually rather be the corpse than who's giving the eulogy at the funeral. But we're here going to have like a whole public conversation about death, like and dying, and, and uh, how to. And yet we sold out a theater for it, which is great. Um, uh, my question, though, is why, why is this so scary to talk about? Like, I think that I could literally name people who would say, I, I, I would rather die than actually have to, like, have this conversation with people. So why, why is this so scary, just to set the table a little? You're looking at me. So I think what I experience talking with people, wow, that's loud, <laughs> is a lot of people think that if they talk about death, they're calling it in. And there's also cultures that believe that. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case. <laughs> it <laughs> doesn't? Know. That's good. It's not. That'd, yeah. be, that'd yeah. be weird if that was what you found out. Like, actually, <laughs> I had the conversation, and this three days later, <laughs> like, oh. You're, you're done. You're yeah. out. Studies have shown. Yeah, <laughs> studies have shown. No, I tried when I, I was a stage four cancer patient, and let me tell you, it was ugly, and I prayed to die. I asked to die, and I found out I'm not that powerful. It would have been good, but it didn't happen that way. So I also think that there's our dominant culture has this taboo about talking about death, that it's become this me- medicalized experience that it's failure, and so you're supposed to be able to go to the doctors. Anne is supposed to fix us no matter what's going down. And so we've got this neat, tidy thing that doesn't happen like it used to generations ago that people lived on the farm and life and death, and you saw animals die, you saw plants die. I see them in my yard. You're dying right now. But, you know. <laughs> it's, it's only Memorial Day. They shouldn't be dying yet. Um, but so... Uh, in a healthcare space, if you're, you know, uh, in the emergency room or in the hospital, and you come up to somebody and you say, "Have you had a conversation about long or long-term care, uh, advanced planning?" What, what's the first reaction most people give you? Well, most people say, "Oh my gosh, is it really that bad?" And I, it's like it's a yes or no question, but. So they're worried, which I, is understandable for me to, to say that. They think things are worse than perhaps they are, but um, it's mostly because most people haven't had the conversation. So uh, 
I want to get into some of the specifics, but just to, again, maybe set the table a bit for us, how did you each get into this kind of work? Because actually, and fun fact, you two hadn't met before um, we put this show together, and uh, you each have been working on this issue in different spaces for a while. Can you just maybe give us a brief background from each of you? How did you start into this work? And you've started to allude to some of your story already. Yeah, so I was a doctoral student working on two PhDs, and in between classes I got diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. So that kind of changed my life. Uh, they told me to prepare to die. They didn't expect me to live. And so when I, when I did, let's just say that, um, I decided to change my career path and work with people that are facing death because I'm not afraid to talk about it and help people do that walk because it's a scary piece to address when other people are saying to you, just think positive. Like, that's going to do it. <laughs> I tried that. That didn't work. <laughs> so it was my cancer experience that changed my career path. For me, I, I'm faced with that on a regular basis in the emergency department, and I truly, that's the answer I get when I ask people. Um, and as I told Tane and preparing for this, it's like, oh, it'd make my job a lot easier if people did their advanced care planning, so really it's all about me. But um, You are so selfish, I, I really. Know, I know. I'm trying to get to be more selfish as I get older. But um, So it, it's better for people. It's better for me because I know what people want, but it's better for people because the default in the medical community is to do everything and everything doesn't usually work oftentimes it's not what people really need or or want but they don't haven't thought about what they want so being faced with that answer of is it really that bad um so often i really it motivated me along with some other things but i think the important thing is is that the emergency department really isn't the place to have the conversation, and we don't get to have a conversation there. It's, I need to know this, like, right now. And it puts a big load on people, and, and it's not comfortable, and it's not the best way to do it. I had a hard time even sort of uh, setting the terms of this show up, because there's a lot sort of on the table, and this is a place, I think, actually, you because you do come at this from slightly different spaces. Um, when we're talking about planning for end-of-life or end-of-life care, those kinds of things, what all are we talking about? You know, we've thrown around the term, like, advanced directive and uh, living will or X, Y, Z. Like, what, what all are we... What is it that's on the table? Can we just sort of define some terms? Like, if somebody's like, I want to go plan my end of life, like, what are they actually doing? I'll, I'll take this you one. You go for that. Yeah. <laughs> the, I, the forms for me are important because if you come into the emergency department, you know, a form is ideal because then people can work from it. Um, it's not necessary, but it's, it's, it's really the best way. So the advanced directive is sort of a combination of medical power of attorney, so who you choose to speak for you if you can't speak for yourself, and the other half of the form is what you want them to say, um, which requires well, What do you need them? As if you've written down, you just should write out the answer to every possible question like that could possibly be asked. Right. If this happens, well, yeah, that's kind of one of the hard things, and when I talk to people about this, that's one of the things that comes up. And 
you have to think in generalities because, you know, I can think of a million different possibilities of how this might go down, as they say. But um, <laughs> Who said it that way? <laughs> or the people go down. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, my line of work, you know. A- so, anyway. So having a f- – is there like – and this is just sort of a dumb – table setting question there's an actual form like should we be handing out the form right now for people to fill out during the improv i thought you were taking care of that oh sorry i did the um. beer instead um. <laughs> okay well first things first part of it is quality of life i'm really big into quality of life and that's where the beer comes in that's so. true but it is an actual there's, yeah. a, there's, there's like an actual form or there's something. forms there's lots of forms you can get the forms online minnesota honoring choices has the forms some states like their own forms but you know you you can do it. It doesn't have to be on a specific and, form. And that form helps say, okay, when, you know, if I'm in an end-of-life uh, situation in a hospital or somewhere, these are, like, the things I do want to happen. These are the things that I don't want to happen. So that's a very sort of, I mean, forgive me, clinical, like, way of approaching parts of this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But for me, those are the forms that are really important. And I also think they're great to help people think about some of the possible eventualities. Um I have some of my favorite forms too. Actually, what's your favorite I've form? Developed favorites. Uh, it's like your children, but forms. I, I was going to say it's <laughs> it's like my children. Luckily, only one of my kids is in the audience, so my favorite. Your one. favorite, current, Good. my current favorite. Yeah. Um, one is bowling, um, <laughs> which, which is so. She's my currently least favorite. <laughs> um, but anyway, don't tell her. Um, so yeah, so. Uh, one of my favorite forms is called the values worksheet. And I think it's a good form to get started. Like, because how do you start this conversation? Like, hey, Brenda, like, if I'm going to die, this is what I want. So it's kind of hard to bring it up. And there's another one, I think, that's more medical. And the values form, just to to clear that up, is... That is sort of what is that? Why do you, why do you like that one? What's so good about that? Well, I think it gives you a, some ideas of what to talk about. I guess talking about kids, it's sort of like like what matters to you. And one of them is like I don't want to be a burden to my family members. Um, and then you can rate it. And it, it I, I just think it's a good form to kind of go through this. Um, and it gives you an, ideas of what kind of matters or what kind of things you want to think about. Can talk I about as you mentioned, you have. A practice now uh, that is I, very different, I would say, from these forms. Because you actually, we talked a little before the show, you said, I walk with people through their end-of-life process. So right. what is it that you're doing? How is that process different or an add-on to what we've talked about? So already? I like you know, what Anne says. When I meet people, tend, I, what I tend to do is, first and foremost, I... Say, let's plan your death, you know? It's like, you know, then they run out of the room. Just, but yeah, I was about to say, you walk into parties, you're like, let's plan a death. Uh, no. People yeah, don't invite me to parties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, she's no fun. Yeah. She talks about death all the time. Yeah. But it, I they think about me, because I, t- yeah. <laughs> you can save them. Um, on one hand, I think about the bookends is the paperwork. And then there's the whole thing about how's the body going to break down. And what I do in walking with people is I talk about it as the messy middle. What's happening with your relationship? What's most important to you? How do you figure out? How do you, how do you come to terms with your life? And it's not about 
that I want to die. It's not like, yippee, skippy, I get to die today, although sometimes you might feel that way. But it's like, what do I need to complete and finish? So that's a piece of homework, and that the paperwork mm-hmm. is, a, is a part of it, but that's usually one of the first things that's addressed for people. They get that. And then it's like, how do I resolve issues? Those unfinished pieces of business. And in my experience, I had the, twice they told me to prepare to die. And what was so fortunate about that... Did they, by the way, apologize? Like, oh, man, we really got that one wrong. Twice. (laughs) You know? know, They screwed up. What's really great, a number of years ago I ran it, I was at a fundraiser, a cancer fundraiser, right? My kind of cancer, ovarian cancer. And this, I was being introduced to this doctor, right? And she's like, oh, you know, I'd like you to meet Brenda, right? And and the doctor says, oh, I know you. I treated you. We all thought you were going to (laughs) die. I'm not really sure how to respond to that. It's like, oh, (laughs) I didn't. Um, I'm here at this party. (laughs) But here it is. It's good fun. I'm raising money. Uh, It's, But that's part of why I can talk to people is because I went through the process. What I was going to say, the opportunity I had being told the second time because I didn't die the first time is that I got to figure out what did I what what else was left over and it helped me figure out what is my quality of life which is what I want to call you Anne sorry that's okay <laughs> Dr. McIntosh was saying is that it's about quality of life and what did I not finish what else needs to be resolved because then it's about who do I hang with and have good fun. And, you know, that's just critically important. You uh, have talked about death as healing, which seems like an oxymoron, I would imagine, to a lot of people. Um, and particularly if we want to just jump back to the healthcare setting, I'm guessing a lot of your colleagues don't, uh, you know, doctor, nurse colleagues don't think of death as sort of healing. Like they think of it as losing. Or Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. Death is pretty much looked at as kind of a, a failure uh, by us. And sometimes it, you know, it feels like a failure to us. And I think that's some of what needs to change is that newsflash, like everybody's going to die. What? Did we, did we talk about that before? Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's like, well, yeah. And so that's kind of one of the other motivators for me is that you know the real success isn't always what life um you know which i sometimes feel like is loosely defined in the healthcare community um so yeah it's not always a failure to die and we were talking also a good death that is sort of an oxymoron amongst healthcare people too like what do you mean you can only pick one of those things you know <laughs> and so I think there is something to to a good death, and we need to plan it, and it takes some fore planning and forethought and discussion. I think I borrowed that phrase, uh, death is healing, from you. And so when you use that term, what do you mean? So, you know, I have a lot of people that come to me, and they're terrified that they're going to die. They want their treatment to be successful, and... Then there's this scary thing because what if it's not successful and I'm asking them to think about their death and what is a good death. And I'm willing to take the risk to talk to people about what I believe because this is about our belief system and what have our experiences been, what have we been taught, what have we experienced by learning. I can't tell you how many people tell me about Princess Di and what happened to them when they 
learned about her death. And that, that tells people about how death goes. And so I, I tell them, you know, if I'm going to say what I believe, I'm not asking anyone to believe what I believe, but it's just where I'm at. And it's then uh, a still point for them to push against. So I usually go, I'm doing a Brenda thing, and I put my hand up, so push against what I believe to figure out what you believe. And what I believe is that this whole thing called, this goofy thing called life is about healing. And when I've completed my healing, I'm done. And so it's a good thing when I've finished. So it's not like I'm yippy-skippy, I'm going to die. It's like, wow, I'm done. I, I, I love that idea. And like, I... I... <laughs> well, embrace it then. <laughs> I have so many regrets from this afternoon. Like, I can't, I can't imagine. You know, that makes me think of... <laughs> of something that I think is really important in, in having the conversation. And we, one of the things we talked about, I don't want to take away your questions, but is, <laughs> you know, like what is good about having the conversation in advanced care planning? And it is, well, I think it, it goes on both sides. People don't want to have it because it's like, oh, I got to go talk to my mom about, you know, feelings and, and all of the things that people need to um, approach and their regrets and all that kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter is, I believe, is the people who haven't done that have a lot of trouble dying. And Sometimes I've had people, you know, they just can't let go. And I feel like I, you just know it. I was an intensive care unit nurse before I went to medical school. So I spent a lot of time with people who are dying as well. And when they, haven't had, when they don't have peace, they can't let go. And when their people don't have peace or they don't know that their people have peace, they can't let go. Um, so one of the things I think that I think about is when you have that peace – then when the right time is there, you can go. Um, and I, another, I guess, piece of advice that I give people, which I know you're not supposed to give advice, but... Um, Wait, I'm almost sure doctors are supposed up. to give advice. I know. <laughs> we talked about that earlier, too, is like, when did we give up the advice-giving part, which I sometimes think, but is sometimes I think you need to tell the person who's dying that it's okay, you're going to be okay, and that they can, they can go. Okay, so here's one and of my things. And it really things. happens. What I love about what you just said is that you do say that. Part of why I got into this and why this is about my fellowship, my Bush Fellowship, is that I, as a therapist, working with people that are living with potentially life-threatening illness, I'm the one when they say what's going on with me. I'm the one that say, you're dying. And I found lots of people are not as courageous as you because it's a courageous thing to say to somebody, you are dying, that you're in that process of dying. So let's talk about that. Let's get prepared. And that's where you and I, you're in the crisis of that moment, and I get to be able to walk with them and be able to help them talk. And I've had people plan pre-funeral parties so that they get to be there and do all of their goodbyes and say things. I had one family I worked with with four different generations hmm. talking with each generation and developmental area about helping those children, those adult children, those grandchildren understand what does it mean when great-grandma, great-grandma's dying and that she's at peace because she's ended her treatment. That didn't mean that she's a failure and she's giving up. Yeah. Is that she's, and I really think that as we approach our death, it's our last conscious and unconscious act of teaching. 
And so how do I want to teach those people that are around me? And I want you to all feel sorry for my children because (laughs) they've heard me talk about my death their whole life. (laughs) And so they're kind of tired of it. We're listening to a song. It's like, hey, Rob, it's your turn to remember this song for my funeral. (laughs) I have a song list on my advanced care plan, (laughs) but my kids are pretty good at songs. But we talked about this a little bit, too, is I texted my kids about this show, and my oldest child, who's 24, and he's the medium one right now on how much I like my kids, like in that, <laughs> that list. Um, the ranking, the we kids' just ranking. Have a ranking board in the back. There you go. I know. Yeah, they're vying for position. But is, he texted back to me, oh, yeah, I still got to do mine. <laughs> he's 24. His, you know? his advanced directive. Yeah, or, yeah. When yeah. I said, we're talking about advanced directives again. And, I mean, well, this brings me to like a very pragmatic question, which is just. When, uh, you know, and I, I feel like I know what you're going to say to this, but when is the right time to, to do this planning and, and this kind of stuff? Isn't there a song about every time's the right time kind of thing? Is there a song about every time? Tomorrow. About every time's yeah. the right okay. time. Okay, yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so right now... Every time is the right time. Is that the song? It's good. Good <laughs> call. <laughs> um, so... Now, is the, for everybody, do you just, anybody you meet, you're like, you should be writing your advanced directive. Why are you here at this coffee shop? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, yeah. Or we could do it here at this coffee we shop. We could, yeah. I'd help you. Yeah. person's like, excuse me, ma'am, I don't know who you are. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. Actually, I have this great deck of cards that's called Go Wish. And so it's like coming up with, if you get to have 10 things that you would like to have, and there's a deck of, it's 35 things, you know, do you want to be clean? I have had couples argue. The wife is like, absolutely, I want to be kept clean. And he's like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> and what's so great about that yeah. is we all get to choose how, do you want to die at home? Do you want, do you want your physician to know you? It's like, he says, I don't care. And she's like, that's important to me. You know, do you want your kids with you? Nah, I don't want to see them. You might want mm-hmm. to see one. Yeah. <laughs> We have to keep that board up to date. Yeah, because exactly. yeah, when the day comes, just the, yeah. your last act, you just like I'm moving Brenda. Yeah. Like, um, uh, so, okay, so ha- I think we've really established like uh, having this conversation is very important. But just uh, can we put like a button on? Uh, do we actually have evidence? You know, are there have there been studies that show that this? improves people's experience or, I mean ultimately the outcomes are similar I think yeah, but yeah. <laughs> it's tough to change the outcome but yeah there's, there's, there's a fair amount of research that does show that advanced care planning is really positive and it's positive in a lot of different ways without going into the real citations you know Johnson, be when he was at, at Berkeley, um, said. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of um, research that it's better for survivors. They have much less, um, well, critical decision-making PTSD, if they've talked about it before, so they're not put in the position of making critical decisions with no data. Um, so survivors do better. People have uh, better quality of life. There was a good study done. Um, it's a few years ago now, but people in palliative care when they had a, had a, a life-threatening diagnosis, they did they lived longer which I think surprised everybody so the people 
who signed up for palliative care lived longer, rated their quality of life higher, and their health care costs were less. Hmm. Um, people get uh, you know a little upset if it's kind of all about the money. And and I, I get upset that way, too, because it's really not. It's about quality. So uh, oh, go, I want to just add that also people are in less physical pain. What I also witness with the family members, one thing that when I meet a family member whose loved one has died and they haven't had a chance to have these conversations, part of the guilt that they experience, what was the last thing I said to that person? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, and that, that does happen with an accidental or a sudden death, and that, that haunts people. Whereas if we've had a chance to talk about it, and if somebody has said something as simple as, I want you to bury me in the blue dress. Just one thing. Then after that person dies, the family member doesn't angst, have great angst over what should we do mm -hmm. because they've said one thing. And then that means that the rest is what works for you. And so they don't have that guilt and that argument over what to do and who should we be talking to and who should be able to decide this. It's like mom said blue dress, and that's good. Other people, I've had people write their obituary and write up. Mm -hmm. They've, I've had people record things for their funeral. I've had them do their own poster boards and do all kinds of things. And that helps everyone have a conversation. And afterwards, it's like mom really did exactly what she wanted to do. So there's the separation of the sadness of missing that person, which is different from the feeling of what did we do wrong? I had one person that before she died, she had everybody, I, I had the honor to be in the hospital room with her, and she was in her <laughs> mid-30s, and she talked to everyone, her siblings and her parents, and she's, one of the things she added was, there's no medical mistakes here. So that they didn't, because she was really young, and she wanted to make sure, don't think that somebody made a mm -hmm. mistake here. This is my timing. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah, very Don't spend peaceful. your time searching for these. Right things that can't be found well this is the last piece i want to, and as always we'll open it up for you all to ask questions in the second half of the show but um it, if we're just thinking about this uh, since you brought up the that piece about oh it, there's not a medical mistake or whatnot here we've already said i think the healthcare mm -hmm. sort of perspective is oh death is you know a problem something we need to fix if we can even though maybe that's not right so are we training uh, doctors or healthcare professionals to, to do this in a good way? Should we be? Do you, like, how did you learn this? And, and I know that this is part of your Bush Fellowship work, so in the minute or so we have left, could you each maybe talk about, from the professional side of it, how are we approaching this? Well, it's been a long time since I was in medical school. Um, I think... So we didn't get a lot of specific learning. I think it ends up being, you know, who you are that ends up doing it. And given my history as a nurse, that motivated me a lot. And as an ER doc, it motivates me a lot. I have differences of opinions with my colleagues, and we've discussed it, and some of us are more active than others. And advanced care planning is becoming more popular, so I think people are getting a little more comfortable with the ideas that maybe you don't need to do everything for everybody and and that kind of thing. Um, I can tell you one thing that's pretty a sensitive thing among physicians, certainly, anymore, and it, I don't think of myself as the most sensitive physician, but, you know, all I see in the newspapers, 
Why don't doctors know how to talk to people about end-of-life care? Why don't doctors know more about nutrition? Why don't doctors, you know, why, why don't they know everything? <laughs> it's like, well, I, you know, let me, let me count the ways. But anyway, so I, I mean, I think it can be kind of a sensitive subject sometimes in terms of bringing up, you know, who, who can do it. And I, I would say I can do it, and I can certainly speak to the medical, gory, you know, details. Do you want to please don't a tube but, uh, right and all moment, that? Um, but I think it it needs to be a collaborative effort. And there's all kinds of people who have who have some expertise, like Brenda. She can speak to a different part than I, and I think that that's the really important part is to utilize the resources that are available. Part of my Bush Fellowship is focused on training of students. And so one of the things that I've done is looked at, I've got five uh, healthcare programs that I'm targeting, and I looked at their accreditation requirements for a program to be accredited to see if any of them required end-of-life training, and none of them do. And that's hard for me, because I think if we, this is a systemic change that we're talking about, that we need to have all of our healthcare students be trained when their heads are still open <laughs> and then it just goes in with all the other things that they're learning here's how you talk with people and how you have this conversation which is an ongoing conversation right. it's not a it puts people that are in the er in a really tough place it's a one stop you got to have all of this stuff it's as opposed to if we have this ongoing conversation and everyone's comfortable with it it's just part of it on that very powerful note, please, a tremendous round of applause for our two amazing guests. Um, for either one of you, are there cultures that you know of that do it better than we do here? Oh, there's a lot of cultures that do it better than us. There's many cultures that this is an integral part of their life that there's parts of Indonesia where the when a person dies their bones are kept with them they bring them out they keep them clean they feed them the kids know their grandparents their great-grandparents they sleep with them they're part of every day Um, if you I have this fabulous photograph from Guatemala that they're from one of their cemeteries, and it's beautiful. All of the colors that, all of the headstones are painted, and people go out and bring food and music and spend the night in Mm -hmm. All Saints Eve that we do scary things and give out candy. They're out there meeting with their loved ones and spending time together. There's many, many cultures that are different than where what we're used to that death is a common part of their experience. Uh, okay, there was a hand up here. No, I saw. Yeah. I feel like we should be pointing. <laughs> so, you know, I've got the form filled out. I've got the song picked. And I just have it that, that none of those things will matter in the moment, right? Because that person won't be available, and the form's not available, and they're just going to be, you know, putting the tubes in anyhow. And like, what do, do I wear a bracelet? What do I, you know, is this a tattoo? What do I do? You carry the form with you, carry the form with you at all times. Yeah, I've, 
I've had some thoughts about this. Actually, that is, that's a problem about where we're at right now with advanced care planning and getting it communicated. Um, unfortunately, it's difficult with the electronic health record sometimes to find it. Um, some of the healthcare systems are trying to change that. Um, so letting as many people know as you can. Uh, I have seen tattoos. Uh, there's some controversy about <laughs> tattoos and how effective they are. Um, so I, I really think the one thing you need to do with your forms is get them on file with your primary care provider and your primary health care system. Um, and I just think being as proactive as possible and work with us to get this uh, to work better. I would add two things, is have two different copies. One, put them in the glove box of your car, because if you're driving somewhere or somebody's driving you, they're right there, because you go into the ER and the doc is going to want to see, see it. The other thing is that when I've worked with people and we know that it's, the time is getting close and they do not want all of those measures taken, right? So they have them taped on their refrigerator and an envelope so everybody can see that so that it's an easy grab. If the 911 is called and people come in, they can see what, what your directives are. I'm going to add to that, if you don't mind, Please. also. So two, more than two copies, hundreds of copies. Um, <laughs> Just everywhere, throughout know, the house. Email Give them away um, as yeah. Christmas cards. I had this idea once about, and if anybody's in, uh, looking for a business idea, don't steal this, but uh, like post wallpaper, like <laughs> especially for like the luxury senior living places, I thought it might be good. But... So there's a form called a POLST form, and we were talking earlier about all these, which is the Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatments, which is what is actually needs to be taped to a door at somebody's house. That's what that EMS can act on to not do things. Um, is something called a POLST form, which is in a, a form in addition um, to the advanced care planning forms. But I don't want to get too into the details or into the weeds, as Tane would say, but... Um, there's lots of there's th those are kind of the two different forms though. Okay, uh, other qu oh there's some questions. I am willing to come up the stairs. Oh, you have a question there. Also, uh, I'm I'm coming back this way. If you haven't gotten a Finnegan's yet and you want one, please let your oh yes yes good. Our guests both want a Finnegan's. Good. <laughs> this is not Thank for you. asking the question. <laughs> Up here, it's just me and my oh, mom, so and great. we don't have a faith community that we're connected to. Who do we seek out to have this conversation for her and, you know, for myself as well? You know, who do we seek out to help us with this process, not just the medical, but everything that you're talking about between the bookends? Besides Brenda or I? No. <laughs> There's, there's a lot of different opportunities. P pretty much every healthcare system has uh, people on staff that can, that can do this. Um, Minnesota Honoring Choices puts on many classes. They have lots of volunteers that have been trained in, in having the talk. Um, those are a couple resources. So there's death cafes? If you that, notice, yeah. that there, you can see those are like in community bulletins or whatever. You could look those up. I also think that there's a lot of attorneys that practice in this area. I'm sorry. Can we back up? Can, what? Yeah. Whoa, can whoa, you, whoa, whoa, Can whoa. you talk through what a death cafe is? 
Well, the Death Cafe is come to a cafe and have a cup of coffee. Does the cafe know this is about to happen, or is it just like, (laughs) surprise? Yeah, no. They sign a waiver. Yeah, they know, and you come in, and and sometimes there's a movie that people watch together. Sometimes, like that deck of cards that I was talking about, sometimes people just come and ask questions to start the conversation. And everyone that comes, the topic is about death Mm -hmm. and end of life. There's there's, uh, some things... I think depending on your personality and, and, and what sort of catches you, there's a lot of online resources. I think online is difficult because there's so much stuff. It's hard to weed through it. Um, there's books. Um, I know on my website I have a couple books, but there's a book that I think is pretty fun that's a little different look at it called Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? <laughs> um, that's pretty uh, good to kind of start the conversation. Um, there, uh, can a, I just ask one follow-up to this? Because this is a, a, an interesting piece of this, which is the, the religious aspect of it or the spiritual aspect of it, which obviously that is a lot of the framing for a lot of people about how uh, to think about end-of-life care and what happens afterwards. I'm wondering, in both of your experience, because I know um, you with your Bush Fellowship have talked to a lot of people about this. I'm assuming... Uh, in your conversations from a clinical perspective, this comes up. Are, is that good or is it complicating or is it both? Because I can imagine just the diversity of different views and opinions and things that people think about might really make that very complicated for somebody in a healthcare setting with being prepared for, you know, what does maybe I was raised Lutheran, but. That really does not prepare me in any way for what uh, a Hindu or a Buddhist might uh, believe about what happens. And then I might say entirely wrong or stupid things to them uh, when we're in a conversation like this. So I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, how these two forces intersect. That's an interesting thing. It's uh, hard to find. I haven't been able to find any information that has all of what you just talked about with end of life together. So that's what I'm working on. It's fascinating because in some of the different religious beliefs, they do not ever say anything to the person who's actually dying. And so that's a critically important thing for the healthcare professionals to know, is that you talk to the oldest son, and that's who you would talk to and give information to. There's other religions and belief systems that do not want to see chaplains, that want just factual stuff. They only mm-hmm. want to talk to the healthcare professionals. So that is, so that is why I'm working on my fellowship. Is and I have been talking to all different traditions and belief systems. And I think, like in, in the sense of the transgender community, and what would be helpful for a transgender individual as they enter into the healthcare community, how to be treated, and pronouns are critically important and respectful interactions, but also how to know mm-hmm. so that you're yeah. not saying things that are uh, offensive. And I think if, if a healthcare provider is comfortable, as Anne is, having the conversation, then, it's, then you can ask, what do you need? Who do you want to be here? Those kinds of things. What works with your belief system? Like in one tradition, the type of sacred things that they do and they would put underneath a pillow is white, it looks like, well, it's like a white powder. And when she was explaining this to me, she said one of the things is to tell health care providers this is not drugs. So that's when I went, oh, 
oh, she's no, seen them. It's like cocaine, <laughs> you know? And it's like, that's under the pillow. That's something that's secret, right? But you need to know those things if you're going to have those conversations. I, I think another thing about that is we all have to, I think, sometimes be understanding that nobody can know everything mm-hmm. and, and, you know, cut people a little slack. Um, you know, I think that trying to be open and learning and understanding is, a, is, is good. Um, but no, nobody's going to know everything and nobody's going to know anybody's specific beliefs. And, and that's why we have to share them and, and put them out there. Which churches are another resource I, want, I wanted to remi- remind you to talk to. All right, we've got a few questions. Uh oh. Hi, I, um, I just wanted to mention that um, I love being here and listening to both of you. Um, I work as a, a care guide in a program called Life Course at Alina Health, and I'm a layperson trained. But we have deep conversations about end of life, and we and one of the conversations has to do with spirituality and meaning, and so it could be um, you know about religious tra- traditions or um, what gives your life meaning. You know, we ask these open-ended questions, and then we write them up into the medical record. So it's an effort to um, you know be able to lift that up. What matters most to a patient? End of life. We, part of what we do is healthcare directives, but it's so much more. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, it's just wonderful that this is coming, you know, from community and collaborating across, you know, healthcare, community, and everything else. And, and it's so important. And I thank you very much for this. I'm going to go there, and I promise I'm coming to the person in the front. Sorry, Hello. Hey there. Uh, when is a good age to introduce the concept of death? Like, would you, when would you tell your child, I'm going to die someday, grandpa or grandma is going to die someday, and how do you help them process that and then, you know, really bridge the gap that they understand that it's not a bad thing? Are you setting me up to make your mom seem like a bad mom? <laughs> <laughs> I only say that because my kids would do that. <laughs> Um, Just two of them yeah, tonight, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, they left. Um, you know, I, don't, I haven't read any studies specifically, and I, I'm not a pediatrician. Um, you know, it is a part of life, and I think some. I, I think that in that way, and I know for me growing up, I mean, we went to funerals, and in our family, it was usually an open casket, and. And I, I kind of look back at some of those um, experiences, and, you know, I don't know how they made me, you know, how they affected me or whatever, but it was just sort of that's what you did. If it was you were however old, you went to the funeral. And I think a really good piece of advice that somebody gave me, and I, I remember this just like it was yesterday. Um, it, I was a nurse in the emergency department, and, um, and there had been a, a bad wreck, and... The husband had died, and the the wife had been brought in to us. And I was asking the the more senior nurses, like, you know, what do I do or whatever? Because the the wife had asked the question, or, or like, do we tell her that her husband died? And their answer is, like, when somebody asks you, you tell them, and you tell them the truth. And I, for me, I mean, that seems very simple, but that was a, 
you know, it just sort of made me think, yeah. I mean, it, if somebody's asking, they're usually ready to know. It's, it's, I call this the talk for, you know, after the birds and the bees. And I think that's the same thing. Is how do you answer those questions? You answer the question that's asked. And um, although I remember when my daughter asked me, how the babies got out, and then when she asked me how they got in, I was like, ah, <laughs> can we wait? Can we talk about that some other time? Um, anyway, oh, okay. so that, that so would be my kind of I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut this short, but I want to get this. I promise that we get this. <laughs> so um, it's two-pronged. It's two I, I'm really clear on my health care directive that I do not want to be resuscitated, and I do not want to be innovated, and I put it on my, on my um, refrigerator. So why but you have the tattoo. I don't have yeah. that yet. So why why do I need a post in addition to that, number one? And number two, why do you call it a post if it's not life sustaining treatment? Well, it addresses life sustaining treatments and whether you want them or not. Can we can we just define some terms? Pulsed? Pulsed? P O L S T. All capital. Like poster caps. Yeah. Uh, yes. It's a derivative. Okay. So what does this stand for and can we just sort of unpack what um, this question's about and then yeah so a pulsed form is the physician's order for life sustaining treatments and the why you need that is because there's certain people that have to work under a physician's order like the EMS for is probably the best example they they have standing orders. Like everything they do is technically under a physician's order, a standing order, without getting into too much details, you know, rules, laws, stuff like that. But so they can't not do anything unless there's a post for them. They need, to, they need to actually know. If there's somebody there, you know, and I think sometimes this gets broader. It's like if there's someone there going, you know, let her go, let her go. I mean, you don't know if it's the ex-husband, the murderer, or whatever. <laughs> So Sometimes people, they're both, yeah. yeah. Um, so people get kind of technical about that. So that's why you need both. And an advanced care directive really is your wishes. It, if if you, you know the form, it's like, I want to, you know, it has all these, I guess, less specific questions. It does have questions about intubation and resuscitation and that kind of stuff. But the pulse just has a physician's order. It's, it has to be signed by a physician. So uh, we're just about out of time, but... This is the last piece, and I feel like this is incredibly critical, is uh, you all have made a wonderful case this evening for all of these, uh, for the reasons why we should fill out our post or our advanced mm-hmm. directive and why we should, you know, talk to somebody about this or whatnot. And yet, I'm willing to bet, like, a large percentage of our audience or just people in general have heard all these things before and, like... Yeah, that is really important, and I will do it someday. And so, I guess I'm asking: give us the give us the pitch for you know what? How do you start? Like, and give us the pitch: how and why to to just jump into this? What seems like a very cold, scary lake uh, to jump into, um, and do it quickly. Well, I'd say it's not as scary as you think it is. It's not as cumbersome as you think it is. Once you just dive in, and actually what happens is that you feel lighter afterwards because it does help you sort through things, and it helps you really what is important in my life. So it Mm -hmm. makes life better. I would tell you that. And what a lot of people have told me, too, is it leads to really, really meaningful conversations with the people that you really want to have meaningful conversations with. And... 
So honestly, I haven't really heard a lot of people come back and say, oh, that was awful. <laughs> it's, us- it's usually pretty, Oh, I wish I'd never reconciled with my daughter. I know. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I know. Put him in a different order. Um, but yeah, so I mean, and I guess that's what we see on the other side. Uh-huh. So that's that's part of why it's like, yeah, just go to it and, you know, whatever it takes and whatever group you need to have with you to get together, if it requires a couple glasses of wine or whatever, go to it, get started. I think it'll end up being much more positive than you imagined. Well, on that note, please, a tremendous round of applause, a cheers for our two amazing guests, Dr. Ann Magatas, Brenda Hartman. Thank you for listening. The show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend a show in person or even work with us, you can find out more information at our website at www.t2p2.net. This activity was made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.